this morning. Uh, today is, is Palm Sunday. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. Uh, so welcome, especially if, uh, if you're new with us and, and a guest for us. Uh, we call this our family gathering because we believe that we're the family of God because of Jesus and his work to make us the family of God. So uh, we, we try as much as possible to treat one another as brothers and sisters and to gather together to hear from our Heavenly Father because we believe that he still speaks to us and still guides us and still reminds us of his love and still fills us with his presence. And so that's why we come together. And so if you're, you're among us, and welcome. I hope you experience some of those things today uh, as, as we're together. We've been uh, going through a series in um, the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. Um, that's a, a very small letter. It's only four chapters, but we've been taking 12 weeks to kind of go through it and discover everything that, uh, that uh, God wants us to discover through it. And one of the things that we've been reminding ourselves over and over again as we've gone through this series is that Paul wrote this letter to a church that was about four years old, and it was a church that was kind of a small community uh, that wasn't in one of the major cities in the Roman Empire. They were sort of a suburb of uh, bigger cities, and it was sort of a small community. Uh, And so we have a lot in common here at uh, Cultivate because we happen to be about four years old, and we happen to be in a suburb, and we happen to be kind of a small community. And, uh, and one of the things that Paul is reminding this small community in the suburbs that's four years old is don't forget what God has been doing in you and don't forget how great Jesus is and, how, and what he's called you to do and to be about as his people. You're part of something much greater than yourself. And uh, one of the things I love just about uh, our work in, in Haiti and what God has privileged us to be able to do there is to see us kind of give ourselves in just a little way and watch it get multiplied over and over and over again. And so um, the, if you don't know, the school that's being built there is, is going to serve about 400 kids in Shadrach, where about 80% of the kids don't have access to education. And many of them will now. Uh, and started to, to have that become a reality. And that's all of the work of God that, that he's doing in and through us. And it's been pretty cool to, to see that and be a part of that. Um, so as we, as today we're wrapping up the, this series in Colossians, we're looking at the very end of the book, and I know for, for many of you, this has been a pretty significant, um, series, and, uh, I, I really do attribute that to what God has wanted to teach us as a community, uh, throughout this book, but one of the things I'm just curious about is we, we don't often give, uh, opportunities to stop and just ask, like, what has he been teaching us? And so I, I thought I'd ask the family, and so if you're part of the family, if you've been here uh, through the 12 weeks or, or part of it, what has God been teaching you? What has he been reminding you of through his spirit? What's been significant uh, for you? And, it's just, and, and we're doing this, by the way, one is to give him credit for it, and two is to give him thanks. Uh, so, so what do you, th- I mean, what's been going on for you the last 12 weeks? Like, oh no, he gave a quiz. <laughs> We should have been paying attention over the last 12 weeks. Okay. Yeah, the fact that all our lives are, are connected to a root system, right? So we've used that analogy of a tree over and over again to say the, the fruit that we see in our life is connected to some kind of root system. And we have access because of Jesus to a new source of, of life. We have access to, to believe new things about God, which inform the way that we live, right? 
And, and some of those things, I hope for you, were very powerful as we went through that. You maybe connected the dots in a new way between what we believe about God and how we actually live our lives. Those two things are always connected, by the way. They're always connected. So hopefully we'll be able to see that maybe more clearly than before. Yeah, kind of being devoted to prayer, right? And the fact that prayer is a, is a declaration of our dependency on God, right? It's not something that we do to show how great and strong and, and, and whatever. Prayer is actually the absence of work. So it means like we, we are not capable to do everything that we feel like we need to do in life. And prayer is us saying, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Come and fill me and do what I cannot do. That's why Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. That's his final instruction. And what else? I know a lot of you have been around for 12 weeks, so you're just being quiet. So, yeah, so it's one thing to, if we're in a position where we're under someone else's authority, to work to gain their approval as the one who has authority over us. But that's forgetting, actually, that God is our true and ultimate authority. He's the better authority because he uses his authority to serve us and to love us and bless us. Whereas we might be in situations where we're under someone else's authority who doesn't do those things, and we work accordingly to what we believe we're given. Right. So if you have a, a boss who doesn't treat you the way that you think that you should be treated, oftentimes that will lead you to give a certain kind of effort when he's looking and not give a certain kind of effort when she's not looking or whatever the case might be because you're trying to manage that person's approval. And really what we're doing is we're forgetting that God is our final authority and that we can work unto him because he's the best authority there is. He's the one who uses his authority for our good always in every situation. And so that means that for those of us at work, we can work as unto the Lord even if our boss is terrible. Even if we don't like the situation we're in, we can believe that God is using it for our good and for His glory, even if we don't see those things presently from our day to day. That should lead us to live and to work differently than we do. If we believe God and we believe what He's done in Jesus and we believe that we're really under Him and that that changes our identity, it should change everything, right? Yeah, and so often we we shrink Him down to a certain thing. And I think oftentimes in our Christian experience, we shrink him down to being like the one who saves us for a different afterlife, you know? So we, we, we call ourselves saved and we consider ourselves Christian, but really Jesus is sometimes just informing our afterlife because we go, well, when I die, I won't go to hell, I'll go to heaven and I'll be with him. But really, does he affect every day? And that's really what Paul is trying to communicate to the church is that don't forget, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over creation. He is the one who is in charge today. And if you want to know what God is like and to live under him, to be empowered by him, to have your identity changed because of him, you look at Jesus. You don't just look at him and be thankful for what he's going to do in 50 years or whatever the case might be. You look at him and you go, thank you for making me new today and giving me access to the Father. We just sang about that, right? What a wonderful and amazing thing that we have access to God's throne room because Jesus is our great advocate. That He literally is standing before the Father today advocating on on our behalf, going, don't give them what they deserve. Don't give them what their week has produced. Like, if you had a bad week, you don't come here and feel bad about the week that you have. You come here and be thankful that you have an advocate that's far better than you, who stands before the throne of God and says, give them what I deserve, don't give them what they deserve. Jesus is that for you today, if you know him. And so that, 
hopefully that leads you to, to worship and to live life differently, right? I mean, that, hopefully what you've seen is that um, it's not just the letter itself, it's not just Paul's words, but it's really the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the wellspring. And the more that you discover it, the more that you dig into it, the more you find different aspects of it, the more you go, wow, this is the most amazing news there ever has been. And you get so wrapped up in it and you want to live differently because of it. Hopefully you want to even communicate it to others who need to hear it as well. Um, so I, this, I, I, this has been, for me, probably one of the most significant series that we've done just in, in terms of my own personal study. Um, and so I've been really just thankful for it. Um, so today what we're going to do as we wrap up the series is that we're going to look at kind of Paul's final greeting to the church. Um, and here's the thing I've, I've discovered. When you get to a lot of the end of Paul's letters, not just Colossians, but in other places, he starts to rattle off like a list of names of people and like so-and-so greets you and don't forget about this person. And he, you can tell he's like landing the plane of the letter. But at the same time, you, I, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I can often read the end of the letter and go, meh, you know, like, Let's just skip on to the next thing, right? Um, because here's the thing. When you, when you start to read the end of the letter, you get a little bit of a picture into the world of what's going on in the church, and it starts to feel like you're reading someone else's mail. You know what I mean by that? How many of you have ever like, accidentally got someone's mail, you opened it, started reading it, and then you turn it around and you're like, oh no, it's not for me. <laughs> have you ever done that? No, just me. Okay. So when it, I don't, when, if you've had that experience, whenever you've read someone else's mail, uh, on the one hand, you feel like this wasn't written for you and therefore you, you probably shouldn't be reading it or maybe you're not going to get out of it what you think you, you could get out of it. But on the other hand, the flip side and the positive side of that is that you actually get a picture into someone else's world that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And that's kind of what we get. When we read the, the last part of this letter, we get a picture into the world around the Colossian church and around Paul and the church larger in his day. And I love, by the way, the fact that God doesn't strip out the details of that important stuff. Do you ever think of that? Like, the, the Bible itself, it doesn't strip away all the particulars and the people of what was going on in that certain day. It leaves all that stuff in there. And it, it leaves it in there because it matters. One of the things that you get an idea of, especially today as we read the last part, are just all the people that are involved in this whole relationship that Paul has with this church. You start to get all these names and people along the way, and I think God is intentionally doing that to give us an idea that the people are important and that they matter. And that in the same way, God doesn't strip away the details of our life and just look at kind of the, the perfect picture of everything, he's actually concerned with all the details. And so he leaves those details in. So w- what are we to learn from those details? Well, we're going to uh, start in verse 7 in chapter 4. This is on page 823, if you're going to follow along with us in, in the Bibles that we've got here. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one. Okay, It's the only thing you're allowed to steal here is... Uh, there's one of the Bibles under the seats. Feel free to take it with you. So let's see what it, what it reveals. We're going to uh, do ch- uh, verse 7 to the end of the, of the letter. Tychicus, who's one of the, Paul's associates, 
He will tell you about all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a great comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I don't know about you, but one of the the striking things I often get um, just surprised by in when I see into the the world of what's going on in Paul's day is the fact that there are many many people involved in the ministry that's happening. Um, they're they're in fact crucial to what Paul is doing. And not just what Paul is doing, but what the church is up to. And so he mentions 11 different people just here that are involved in some way or another, either in Colossae, where he's writing to, or in one of the nearby cities, or that's around Paul himself. And we often tend to think of Paul as this great individual leader of the church. right? He's the apostle. He's the sent one that goes and begins these new works. He's the missionary that's so great at speaking about Jesus. And we we tend to think of Paul as this lone wolf who's out there on his own, doing his own thing, and everyone's just kind of in awe of Paul. Like, wow, man, look at him. Watch him go. Man, what is he going to do next? And Paul never saw himself that way. He never saw himself disconnected from a community. Oftentimes God used him as the mouthpiece for different communities, And that's why so much of the New Testament is written by him. But he really saw himself as part of a greater church. And really that Jesus was the one who was building his church, that he had given Paul a specific role, but that Paul's role wasn't the most significant one. He really saw the rest of the church as being just as significant, playing just as important and vital a role to the whole thing moving forward because Jesus is the one who's filling it. and Jesus is the one who's using it. And he's going to use different pieces of it for different purposes at different times. All of it to build the body up to what it should be, to full maturity. It's not just about Paul. It's about his people. It's about Jesus' people. Being used together, living life together, doing ministry 
together. And so what Paul is saying, I think by including all these people, is, is to say and give a, a sense to this small church out in the, maybe the middle of nowhere, we're in this together. And God is using you just as he's using us. See, I, I think in order for us to understand that, that God is using his church, filling his church, and that all of his church has a role to play in that, we need to believe some things about ourselves that I think we struggle to believe. I think uh, oftentimes we have a picture of what it looks like to be in the church or part of the church, and we think of other people playing other roles that are maybe more significant than the roles that we think that we play. And so we think it's all about others doing their thing, and it's not about us doing and contributing our part. I think we, we have some false beliefs in the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see the family of God. And, and so there are some things I think that this, this kind of brings back for us that might help us to maybe rediscover some of those things. Um, because here's, here's the, the deal. This is the way that it works. This is God's intention for his church. His intention for his church, as we said way back in chapter 1, is for the entire church to be fully mature. It's to, to start to look more and more like Jesus himself. And so if you remember back in chapter 1, Paul says this, we, he is the one, Jesus, that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that, and this is his big goal, so that everyone would be fully mature in Christ. And he says it's so important, this goal, that to this end I strenu- strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. So let me ask you, I mean, we often dialogue about different things. What, is, what do you think it means to be fully mature? as a follower of Jesus. You probably heard that in churches before, right? Our mission is to, is to make fully mature followers of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes churches will use that language. What does that actually mean? So we, we're, we're moving from self-willed people to Jesus-willed. Okay, yeah. Not just um, believing in him, but knowing that belief works its way out in our actions. And so Jesus says, baptize them into this new identity that I give people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but teach them to obey it. So, so if we're people who know all kinds of stuff about God, our heads are filled with the knowledge of, of the Scriptures, we can quote vast amounts of it to ourselves and other people, and yet we have not love. Are we really followers of Jesus? Are we really mature followers of Jesus? The answer would be no, Because Jesus says, love others as I have loved you. That's a command. We're having trouble loving others as Jesus has loved us. We've got some maturing to do. It's important that we follow him. So moving from self-focused to self-less, right? So if, if being fully mature is looking like our master who is Jesus, Jesus is the most selfless person you've ever met, who's ever walked the face of the earth. So we should expect that our lives in him over time as we mature will become less focused on ourselves, less about ourselves because we know that he takes care of us. Therefore, we can give our lives for the sake of other people, both those that are currently in the family of God and those who may be coming to faith. Right. So it's it's going from children, so to speak, who look to their parents for everything that they can do to them. Those of your parents know that like, you know, 
half of your conversations with your kids are about what you can produce for them. You know, I want juice, I want snack, I want to go outside, I want to play, I want TV, and you're the one that can give it to me, so I'm going to look to you for everything, which is good, by the way. Children are supposed to do that, but they're not to remain there their entire lives, right? Um, Over time, kids should move from looking to mom and dad to just give them everything to mom and dad empowering them so that they can do things, right? As part of our parenting is to raise our kids up uh, to maturity so that they can uh, be empowered to do and not just to take from us as parents. And then I would go a step further and to say what it looks like to be fully matured isn't just, like, I'll use the example of my boys, not just for them to, like, be able to feed themselves, you know, like, I have an 18-month-old, and already he's relatively proficient at getting the fork from the plate to his mouth, right? Hopefully that'll improve over the course of time. But I don't count full maturity as him being really, really great at feeding himself. How would I count full maturity for him as my son? What do you think? Yeah, when he's sitting down at his dinner table with his children feeding them and teaching them how to feed themselves as I've taught him how to feed himself. That's the picture of full maturity in terms of children, right? We don't just hope that they grow up so that they can get, kind of get kicked out of the house and then feed themselves the rest of their life. No, we understand that what God's about is for them to continue to feed other people as, as they start to take on a family of their own. And so that same picture of maturity should be the picture that we strive for. That as we get built up in in Jesus, we are not only able to feed ourselves, but we're actually able to feed other people. We're able to help them to mature into what it looks like to be fully. You see, and, and, and what that means is that everyone gets to play. Because everyone has a role in that. Everyone gets to participate in that work because maturity for the body of Christ means that everyone gets to be filled up to be able to do that for other people. Not just the guy on the stage, not just a few select leaders within the church, although we should be the ones modeling it for the rest of the church, but eventually what it means to be fully matured is that everyone in the community is learning how to do this for themselves and for one another. That should change a whole lot about the way that we see the church, shouldn't it? changes a lot of things. But it, it, it necessitates that we believe a few things about ourselves. And so what I want to do is maybe focus on what those beliefs about who we are as, as part of the body of Christ and how they need to shift towards some things in order to actually participate in what we're talking about, in order to see the kind of community that Paul saw. The first thing is this. We need to actually believe that everyone is a gift. That everyone is a gift. I think oftentimes we think about um, gifts as being the, maybe the talents and the resources and the time that God entrusts to us to give to other people. You know, so you may have a certain spiritual gift that God wants to use you to kind of give to, off to, to someone else. The primary gift, though, that God has given you for the sake of his body and for the sake of the world is you. You are the gift. Your life is the gift to be used out of worship to God for the sake of His church, for the sake of His 
community. And so um, Paul says this elsewhere to the Roman church. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in other words, we, we kind of lowball what we think God wants from us or that he wants of us. We think that God ought, like, wants our money. And if we just give our money, then we're kind of good on God's terms. Or he wants our weekends. And so we give him some time, you know, give in, in service to, to something or someone. Or that he wants a week of our time. And so we go to places like Haiti and we give a week of our time. Those things aren't to be the end of our gift, actually, because God has given you an entire life. And the reason that he's given you an entire life, the reason that he's saved you in that life, is so that he can use your entire life. See, he's not just, he doesn't just want your money or your stuff or even part of your time. He, he wants you. He fills you. He empowers you. You're the one that he's created. You're the one that he's saved. You're the one that he fills with his spirit. And all of that is so that you and I can live our lives as a form of worship that points others to what God is like. See, we, we tend to think of worship as just kind of singing on Sunday morning. And that is, by the way, in our songs, our hearts hopefully are directed to Him in worship, giving Him honor for who He is. But really what worship means is to give our entire life for the praise of His glory, so that others would understand what He's like through us by the way that we live towards them. And so Paul is saying to the Colossian church, basically, they're, they're a gift to Him. And that there are others who are given as a gift to them. I, I hope you see, like, that's why there are so many people that Paul says, hey, and by the way, so-and-so gives his greeting, and, and so-and-so gives their greeting, and this person gives their greeting. And the reason that, that he's making sure that they understand that all these people are doing that is because Paul wants them to understand that all of these people know what's happening, they know what God is doing in the community, and they believe that God is doing it as a gift to them to encourage them. And Paul wants them to know that the gift is mutual, that these people are given for their sake too, and that they're to be encouraged by them. Church, I, just, I, I want you to know... Um, specifically just after last week and just sharing some of the things about where our family is and, and um, the fact that many of you have just offered your prayers and encouragement to me over this week and have asked me how I'm doing and, and everything. You're a gift to me. You're a huge gift to me and to our family. And so I just want to thank you for that, the way that God uses you to encourage us and to, uh, to check in on us and to pray for us. And so it, that's an encouragement to me, and I hope it is for you as well, that, uh, that God is using you in our lives. But oftentimes I, I, I know that when we talk about our life as a gift, maybe given for the sake of, of God and, and what he's up to in the world, that we resist that sometimes. That we, we hold back from that on occasion. What are some of the reasons that we tend to do that? That we don't see ourselves as a gift. There's some of the other reasons we might not give our, ourselves or see our lives as, a, as an act of worship that God can use. We can do it all, all ourselves. 
or that our lives are for us. So we think the gift that we give is going to fall short, so why give it in the first place? (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. So if you make yourself available, God's going to choose the thing that you hate the most. (laughs) Right? Yeah, (laughs) there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the lack of understanding what maybe our gift is. Yeah, if I'm the gift and I need to give my life away to someone else, but I'm broken, how are they going to receive the gift? Like, no one's going to give a broken toy to a kid, <laughs> right? Which is a misunderstanding of the way that God works, actually. We'll talk about that. And there could be all kinds of reasons, right? Here's what I want you to believe, though. You are the gift that God wants to give. You are the, the primary gift, aside from his son, that God wants to give both to the church and to the world. And we need to understand that if we're going to live as we should maybe towards the rest of the family and towards what God wants to do through us. And God gives us gifts in different ways, right? Uh, the rest of Rome, uh, Romans, which we won't uh, have time to get into, says that all of us are given different gifts in accordance with His grace to us. And so we're all unique in the way that we're given gifts for the sake of the body. And if we don't give our particular gift, even as broken as it might be, then the family will miss out on that aspect of the gift. See, none of us are meant to give a complete gift the way that Jesus gives his gifts to us. We're we're meant to give the gift that God has placed into our lives according to the grace that he's given to us. No more, no less with the understanding that God will actually use that gift for the sake of other people. So you may not have the gift of teaching, but you may have the gift of serving others. You may not have the gift of prophesying or saying incredible things, but you may have the gift of mercy. And in showing mercy to others, they actually receive the mercy of God through you because you withheld something like some kind of punishment from them. So if like somebody wrongs you and instead of uh, holding that against them forever, you show that person mercy because you've been shown mercy, guess what? They've received through you the mercy of God. That's the way that it works. God's primary means to show himself and who he is is by working what he's done through his people extended to others. That's an amazing thing, which sounds great, but oftentimes our belief is that we aren't qualified to play maybe our part in in what God is calling us to do. And so we feel like, you know, like what was said, if our gift is broken, how in the world is someone going to receive that as a good gift? And here's the thing that you need to know. Not only is everyone a gift, but everyone is qualified as a giver. Everyone's gift is qualified because everyone has been qualified. There is no one that gets excluded from participation in God's family. There's no one that doesn't get to bring their gift, in a sense, to the rest of the family. And here's how you know. This is a, I, I don't know if you understand what's actually going on in this last chapter and the list of people that Paul gives as, as like the ones to look to uh, for the church and the gifts that they're given. It's not exactly a hall of faith. I don't know if you understand this about the list. There's some, some shady characters in the, the role that Paul gives. And, and I think if we actually understood that, we would understand maybe something about ourselves and the way that God uses us. 
So, so let's look at some of the people that Paul points to as some of his closest companions in ministry. First one is Onesimus. Anybody know anything about this guy? Yeah, he's a disobedient runaway slave. So something that he did as a slave, now slavery was different in, in uh, this day than what we often think. Most of the time what happened in slavery is that you got yourself into debt with someone that you could not pay off. And so literally you sold your life into slavery to pay off the debt that you owed. And oftentimes uh, slave masters would take such advantage of their slaves that they wouldn't let them out of debt because they, they, just, they would consider their, their time and their energy towards the debt just very, very small. And so they would work and they would work and they would work and they would never quite pay off the debt. And so a lot of slaves, because they couldn't get themselves out of debt, they would just kind of rebel against their slave master and move somewhere else so that they could be free for a little while. And apparently that's what Onesimus did to his master Philemon. He said, I'm going to just get away from the master and be disobedient and find somewhere else to live. And somehow, we don't exactly know how, he encounters Paul along the way. And Paul uh, brings him in and starts to treat him not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And, and Onesimus' mindset shifts to a great degree because here's what Paul says about him. He says, Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. So he's saying not only is Onesimus a faithful one in that his actions can now be trusted, but he's going to be the one who gives the report about everything that's going on here. His words can be trusted. I don't know if you thought about this for yourself, but maybe you think of yourself like, I don't have the best track record in I haven't been the most faithful person when it comes to my words or my actions. They've often fallen short. And, or maybe you feel like others look down on you for your status in life. You feel like you're, you don't measure up in some way because of something that you've done. And you think that maybe that disqualifies you from giving your gift. I just want you to know that in Christ, God the Father does not see you that way anymore. He does not consider you through the eyes of what you've done. If you belong to Jesus, you you actually get a new identity. You get the credentials of Christ who always did what was good, right, and perfect, who always spoke the truth of God in every single moment. And so you have an opportunity actually at restoration. And I hope prayerfully that our community here would not see you through the eyes of what you've been or what you've done in the past or who you used to be or why you used to fall short. We would see you through the eyes of Christ and go, you know what? You may not deserve a second chance, but here you get one. None of us deserve a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth chance. All of us walked away from the giver of life, and yet God gives us a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh, and an eighth, and a ninth, and on and on and on, right? Oh, that we would be a church that allows people to fail and to be restored again and to use their gifts again. There are others too. Think of Mark. What do we know about Mark? We went through the book of Acts last year. What do we know about him? He's a quitter. (laughs) He was invited along to participate in in the mission of Paul and Barnabas, like the two, you know, 
pillars of the church that are going to go out. And you get to like ride along and learn from these guys. And yet when things got difficult, he ran back to his mom. He literally went back to his mom's house and says, I'm done. And Paul writes him off at first. Remember, he and Barnabas have a huge disagreement when it comes to the next time of whether or not to include Mark on the next journey. And Paul says, I'm not having him again. He failed once. I'm done with him. He cannot be relied upon. And yet something happened even in Paul's own heart between that disagreement and his writing this letter to the church. Because what does Paul say about Mark? He says this, He's the cousin of Barnabas, which may, in fact, give us a window as to why Barnabas felt so uh, gracious towards him. But he says, you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So not only is Mark restored and gets to play a part again, apparently Paul has been sending out instructions to the various churches, vouching for Mark that if he comes to your town... You welcome him as one honored guest. Treat him with the honor that he may not deserve, but in Christ he has. He is fully restored. He is fully new. Treat him as such when he comes your way. I don't know about you, but if I were Mark and I disappointed Paul and everyone in the Roman world knew about it, I'd have a hard time showing my face in different places. I would have a hard time walking into a city like Colossae and and people are going, hey, aren't you Mark? Yeah, I know about you. It's not the best reputation to have, right? And yet, Paul is making sure that he does the work that he has to do to restore Mark's reputation before the entire church. How awesome is that? I just want you to know, if you feel like you don't have the best reputation if you feel like a a bit of a mark where you you go, I've failed some people before. I don't know that I live up to the standard of what I should be. Therefore, I'm going to hang back a little bit and maybe not give my gift the way that I should. I just want you to know that Jesus Christ restores your reputation in Him. In Him, you are full. In Him, you are whole. And as a church, we will try to do our best to see you as such. And when we fail at that, we actually need to remind one another that we are not who we are apart from Christ. We are sons and daughters of the King who gave His life for us. There are others too, quite a few. Luke, a Jewish doctor, who has the wrong uh, uh, occupation to be used, is being used in tremendous ways. Nympha, who happens to be a woman, which wasn't the greatest thing to be, in the Roman world, you tend to get looked down upon, and she apparently is the leader of a house church. God is using her in incredible ways to lead the church. And then there's Archippus, who apparently was like one of the forgotten people because he's not even at the gathering, and they have to like, Paul's like, go and make sure that you tell him he has a specific ministry in the Lord that only he can fulfill. So he wasn't like, he wasn't the guy that was there every Sunday. He was the one who probably stayed in bed on Sunday mornings. And may, I don't, we don't know the reason for that. Maybe he's older in his years and, and he has a hard time getting there. But Paul is going, as the church, don't just let those people fall to the wayside. Pursue them and make sure that they understand that even they have a role to play. 
He's not been forgotten. He's not been cast out. He's not been overlooked. Bring him back in. Make sure he understands that. See, I hope what you're hearing is that the thing that qualifies all these people is not their resume. It's not what they've done. It's not who they are. It's not how they've proven themselves, how they have this great thing going on for themselves. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's the exact opposite of that. Paul's saying these people aren't qualified because of their lives or their reputations for themselves. All of them have the credentials of Christ. Therefore, they're qualified to play a role in Christ's family. They've been qualified. Therefore, treat them as such and invite them in to play their role. See, we think that oftentimes God searches the earth looking high and low for like the best specimens there are in the human race. Right? Like, if I could just use this person, man, would my church just hum along like crazy. And yet, we often do that, right? How many of you ever said like, wow, if so-and-so became a Christian... Wouldn't that be awesome? Because the gifts that they have, I mean, they're just incredible. If they could just use those for the sake of the church rather than away from the church, boy, would the church benefit. I want you to know that that's false thinking. It's actually not giving God His credit because here's what we know about God. He doesn't choose the best things in the world. He chooses the ones that weren't the best. In fact, he says this to the Corinthian church. He says, This is Paul saying this. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. See, God's not into sharing credit. And He understands that For him to call the best things of the world and then to rely on their skill would be to to say something that's not true about God, which is he's the one who fills us. He's the one who uses us. He's the one who empowers us. And by the way, that should be encouraging to us. Unless, of course, you're focused on yourself. See, if if you think you're strong, you're, you're probably missing the point. And this isn't good news to you. But if you feel weak, if you feel broken, if you feel like you're in the despised and the rejected and the forgotten ones of this world, if you feel like you have nothing to offer, good! That's the best place you could possibly be this morning. I mean it. And the reason I mean it is because God loves to fill and to use broken and unused things. He loves to to do that because then it shows the greatness of His worth rather than the beauty of our own lives. It shows the beauty of the One who fills us by His Spirit rather than the goodness of our own life. And I've been growing to understand that more and more and more. Uh, I had many of you encourage me after last week and just uh, the conversation that we had about prayer. I just want you to know, when I came up here to deliver that message, I felt like I had absolutely nothing to give. Really? I mean, I, I've, like, I'm looking at my notes going, this is going to fail. <laughs> I, like, yeah, I, I, sometimes I have those weeks where I look up through my notes and I'm like, nothing, nothing, nothing. I've got nothing. Like, there's nothing good in any of this. And, and, and you get up and you just feel like, how in the world could God use this? And then He does. 
and he fills it, and he uses it in ways that you can't imagine. The reason I share that with you is because that happens often for me, and I want you to know it works the same way for you. If you feel insufficient and inadequate, good. Reach out for your Heavenly Father and know that He empowers you by His Spirit to use you in ways you could not imagine. See, He qualifies you. And then last, everyone's a gift. Everyone um, is qualified. Lastly, everyone is a served servant. Here's what I mean by that. We are called to give ourselves in accordance with what we've been given. We get to live out a role in accordance with what God has done for us. Um, We often use different motivations to kind of get ourselves psyched up to give maybe the gift that God wants us to give for the sake of his body. We use all kinds of motivating tools to to help us maybe uh, do what we might not otherwise do. We might think that God expects us to do it or that if we do, we'll build a name for ourselves, or that people will appreciate us more, or the fact that if we didn't do those things, we'd feel guilty about it. And here's the problem with those ways of thinking. None of them will actually motivate you to give your life the way that Paul gave his life away for the church. One of the things I love about Paul is that you see in him a picture of somebody who just gives his life away in a very Christ-like way for the sake of the body. Paul served the church even when the church didn't give Paul back what he might think that they should. And so sometimes Paul served the church and the church turned its back on him. Sometimes Paul taught the church and then the church used his words against him to, to spread a bad reputation about Paul. Sometimes he, he would serve the church in, in freedom and give his life and then his life would be thrown in jail. And he would be chained up for it. And you have to ask, like, what in the world would motivate him to do that? It's not any of the things that we've just talked about. There has to be some kind of greater motivation to do what Paul did. And I I think what enabled Paul to do it is what he gives a little bit of a clue about at the very end of his letter. He says this at the very end, I, Paul, write this greeting to you in my own hand, Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Why in the world would he ask them to remember his chains? Why include that? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons we might come up with. Maybe he wants to remember how bad his situation is so that they they continue to pray for him. Maybe he he wants them to go, hey, whatever you're going to go through, I'm going through worse. You ever get one of those, like, you know, Buck up a little bit. Like, make sure that you go through this because what you have to endure is nothing compared to what I have to endure. You've got it easy, therefore you should be fine. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I think Paul's including that because he wants them to understand something about his life and something about the way that he sees Jesus. Uh, John mentioned it before, the fact that today is uh, Palm Sunday. It's the day that that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was recognized for who he was, truly, by the city. He rides in as the Messiah, who is the one sent to save, and the city lays down palms before Jesus and says, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means the one who's come to save us from our sins, the one who's come to rescue us 
and to make us new. And they give him the honor that he deserves. And then a week later, they enslave him and chain him and then ultimately crucify. I think Paul includes this little tag of saying, I'm in chains here, remember them. Because he's telling the church in, in a way, what I am going through here is nothing compared to what Jesus went through for me. It's not like Paul's in a, a, a jail cell going, woe is me, everything is bad, things are better for you, so get better in terms of what you're thinking. No, he's, if you know anything about Paul, he's rejoicing in the jail cell. He's telling the jailer who he's chained to about Jesus and going, hey, you don't have to be chained up anymore. You could be free in him. As he's got chains on. And so Paul is saying to to the church, it's not that I'm lamenting my situation here. I actually understand it more than I've ever understood it before. I may be in chains physically, but because of the chains of Christ, I am free in every other way. And that is really the freedom that counts. See, all of us will, will either look at Jesus and think that to, to give our lives as a servant, maybe for his church or for others, is really to enslave ourselves. Do you ever think about that in your own life? Like, man, if I were asked to do something or if I participated more fully in the church, that's going to be such a drain on my time and my energy and my resources if I do those things. And what we're really saying to ourselves is I am putting myself in bondage if I do that. I want you to know that that is to, to do that for your king is actually freedom. It's actually to live out of the freedom that he purchased for you. You were designed to live a free life of giving yourself away for others. And the way that you know that that's true is because Jesus, who is the freest one who ever lived, gave his life away for the sake of others. And as a result of that, he was enslaved in a bondage of sin and death so that we could be free. So I want you to know that if you're, you know, in just considering giving your life away for the sake of Jesus' body, to know that Jesus gave far greater to you. He gave far more. You could never match the gift that he gave, and he doesn't expect you to. And actually, to give your life away for him is the most freeing thing you could possibly give. And when we forget that, when we forget that we have been served in Christ by our Heavenly Father and King, That's the day that we forget what it means to be a servant. So the more we get in touch with that, the more that we remember him, the more we'll live as we should, which is a servant of all. I just want to invite you to that church. I want you to invite you to giving your life away for him, for the one who gave his life for you, because it's the best life that we could possibly live.